You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bedient with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, here with my two lovely, delightful, beautiful, charming, Stunningly vivacious, incredible co-hosts. Wow. Wow. We're awesome. Not have a thesaurus in front of me. This is just from looking at your two beautiful faces. Um, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. How are you ladies both doing today? We are doing wonderful and even better since we're talking together. Yes. And now that it's summer, it just life just feels good. <laughs> what, what's your favorite season? Is summer your favorite? You know, I really do like summer a lot. Actually, um, in Tennessee, I'll have to admit, I really like fall. Fall is probably my favorite season. That's the season I chose to get married in because the leaves are just so pretty here. So probably fall is my favorite, but I really like summer a lot too. What about you, Carrie? So we had a fall wedding too, um, but I, I think it's probably a tie between summer and fall because I, I mean, I grew up in the desert, so I'm a desert rat. So the heat is no big thing. And in Vegas, it's actually a lot cooler comparatively than it is in Phoenix. And, and it's, it's about 10 degrees, but it is the most important 10 degrees ever. And so, <laughs> so I, summer is pretty high up there. I mean, I would say it's a solid number too, because spring here is just uh, a tease. Like it's a, here's about a, two weeks in cool, but really sunny temperatures. And then, and then it hits summer. And so spring, I don't understand the concept of. So I I think summer is pretty high. What about you, Susan? I like early summer. (laughs) I'm picky. (laughs) Well, in Texas, like May, June, early July is, is nice. I mean, like it, it right now we're in our rainy season, but it's, you know, you can go sit on your patio, enjoy outside and things are green and pretty August suck. Okay. Like <laughs> it, there is no other way to say it. Everything turns brown. It all dies. It's icky. And everybody, we always have a drought and then we all end up on water restriction. And all you hear is people griping about water restriction and what you can and can't do and who's cheating and <laughs> not cheating on their partners, but cheating on their lawns. <laughs> Amazingly though, every year, September always happens. And what happens in September? It's kind of like May. It rains. It rains every year. My birthday's in September. Huh. And like, as a child, like I remember like it was almost a guaranteed that it was going to rain sometime the week weekend of my birthday. Like it just rains in September and then the droughts break and we kind of go into our like crazy circle. But I do like, I like early summer when things are pretty and not a hundred degrees yet and not scorched. I have these giant yellow bell bushes in my backyard and because spring only vaguely exists here, um, <laughs> I always know that it's summer when my yellow bells start to bloom. And this last year, we didn't cut them back to look like tiny little stick bushes. So they started off really tall and they're pretty fabulous because it's just this huge burst of yellow and green. And I love it. That's cool. Yeah, that's kind of my my thought that summer's here is first the azaleas start to come out in spring, which are really beautiful around here. And then finally, when my hydrangeas start to bloom, they have big, you know, white and blue and pink flowers. And 
when they finally start to bloom, that's when I really know it's it's summertime. And I, I just like I just like the heat. It's just nice. I mean, not hot, hot heat, but nice enough that you can go sit down on your porch or sit down on your deck and eat dinner. And that to me, that's just the funnest part about summer is coming home and still still being daylight outside when I get home and being able to spend time outside, you know, with my family. That's awesome. I love where where we are. We have lots of white-tailed deer. And so right now, all the mamas are very pregnant. And they're going to start having their fawns soon. And the baby fawns are so cute. And they're, they're just... They're just darling. They're just darling. And then they eventually became teenage deer. Teenage deer are not very smart. (laughs) It's just like regular teenagers. They, you have to keep it like the baby fawns stick near the moms and the grown up deer, like they know like people and cars. And I'm in kind of a acreage community. So it's like, we all have some land, but we used to have neighbors and stuff like that. But our deer have us all very well trained. (laughs) We know they were here first. Um, But yeah, baby deer season. I love it. I love it. This is going to sound like a dumb question, but I've never lived anywhere where there's deer frequenting the area. Really? Can you look at a, no, I mean, I'm a desert rat. Always happen. Um, Can you look at a pregnant deer and know that she's pregnant? You can towards the end, like right now you can see them and it's like, they are definitely fuller. It's kind of like when you look at a horse and it kind of goes upward, upward towards the rear end, like Uh they're kind of are like that. And like right now they, they look pretty chunky. And actually when it comes to white tailed deer, I read an article from our HOA recently that like the percentage of twinning is like over 50%, which is crazy. But that's just proof enough how much they are prey and um, how much they have to do to survive. But they have a huge rate of twinning because you do do see a lot of them. And I've actually, until I read that, I was really curious as to do deer um, kind of adopt other, you know, deer? Because you see multiple baby ones with a single mama a lot. Um, and it was interesting because, so the baby, the little boy deer get to hang around mama for a year, little girl deer get to hang around mama for two years. Oh, interesting. So I, I thought that was another little interesting tidbit for Texas, Texas lore. (laughs) All right. Well, on from baby deer to our question of the day. So This question is about school careers and fertility treatment. So while we all hear about people delaying pregnancy well into their 30s and 40s to focus on school and careers, what about those who decide to go for it anyway? College often takes place in your prime fertility years, especially if you go to school a little bit later or pursue a more advanced degree. So I assume that women have babies, including planned or fertility treatment babies, in college fairly often, but you never really hear about it. Can you talk about your experiences with this? So... What, what are your guys' experiences with younger women needing fertility treatment in terms of like, this kind of sounds like the 25 years old patients and younger, um, or, or even maybe a little bit later in their twenties. What are your guys' experiences? I mean, I think regardless of what you're doing, otherwise, whether you're working or in college or whatever, I mean, I think there's a few people that we see in their early twenties and those are usually people who don't ovulate at all. So, you know, unless we give them something to make them make an egg, they have trouble getting pregnant or who have blocked fallopian tubes or who have partners that have a really low sperm count or don't have any sperm at all. Those are generally the ones that we tend to see early on. Um, It's pretty rare to see anybody for true infertility. Um, 
I just think as you get older, you know, like everything else, more problems arise. You have more exposures potentially to sexually transmitted diseases that can block your tubes, uh, more reasons why your husband may have low sperm count. And so I think just older women just have more potential issues in addition to the aging of the the eggs. But we definitely do see younger women, just not as many. I would completely agree with Abby. I I think I've had a pretty enlightening experience getting to be in Texas for most of my career, but I went, I did my fellowship training up in Minnesota. As a little background for me, I got married when I was 22 after my first year of medical school. And then... Wow. I didn't know you were that young when you got married. I didn't know that either. You were a baby. I was a baby. And um, my first child we had when we had been married for like five or six years, it was in my third year of residency. So, um, you know, I was still in my kind of mid to late 20s. um, And where I'm from, that was not unusual. And so, you know, I have, I I don't have a whole lot of patients that are less than 25, but I, I have some. I think I probably have more patients in that 25 to 30 group than I necessarily experienced when I was in Minnesota. But when I was in Minnesota, like everybody thought I was a freak because I had gotten married at 22, which was like unheard of because all of them were like not even married yet. And um, I was having my second child in fellowship. And so... Um, it was much more of a we put it off type of thing. And it, it I, I do think there's definitely regional differences that you can experience, but there within all regions, you're going to have people, you know, we have people, I, I have patients who come in who are 20, okay? And then I have patients who come in at 50. And, and so um, we, most reproductive endocrinologists, I think are going to see, you know, the entire gamut. And also, Unfortunately, for a lot of people, you know, when it comes to actual fertility treatment, a lot of it is still cash-based. Insurance doesn't necessarily cover it. Granted, there are some mandated states and insurance coverage is increasing and that type of thing, but most people still don't have access to insurance-paid fertility care. And so if you're looking at something that even costing a few thousand dollars or $2,000 a month for, you know, an IUI treatment, or if you need to go to IVF and you're looking at something with a much, much bigger price tag, those dollar amounts are, they're harder to swallow when you're younger because you've had less time to, you know, grow your earning potential. What do you, what do you think, Carrie? So I would say with where I am in Vegas, I have two, two populations of younger women who come to see me and, um, one one set of the population is the the female couples in our LGBTQA mm-hmm. um, population, um, and they're women who they've met their partner, they know they're ready to start the family. They have what I call a permanent lack of male factor, and and so they know that they're going to need some kind of assistance in terms of getting pregnant. So that's one subset of women, and those patients are simultaneously easier and harder. You know, they're easier because they're young and they're healthy. They are harder because fifteen percent of women have unexplained infertility, and that that number doesn't really care whether or not you partner with men or women or whomever. And so, um, so it's easier because a lot of times they're easier to get pregnant. It is more challenging because there's going to be a subset that don't, where you have to work harder to do it. 
Well, and kind of, you know, talking about what Susan, when Susan was talking about cost, I was just thinking about a same-sex couple that I saw last week and finances were their big issue. They really wanted to start a family, but but like you said, Susan, they, they had no coverage, which most people don't, and they're really young and they just don't have a lot of money saved up. So that's something, you know, that they're going to have to, to work with to, to try and be able to, to afford to do it. So yeah, I think for young couples, that's that's a big issue if you're a same-sex couple. And then there's also um, a, a couple of um, subsets of the population where getting married at age 18, 19, 20 is, is very common. It's just what you do. And so with that subset of the population, they have started to try at a much earlier age than I think mm-hmm. many other women do. And so they're coming in at age you know, 21, 22, 23. Um, because they have been trying for a couple of years and it hasn't happened. You know, again, they're limited by the financial because of just the impact that 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 has, and they may or may not be in a really stable, good insurance providing job that can help them at least get the diagnostic treatment. Um, but for those couples, uh, and for a lot of our younger couples in general, I tend to work a lot more with their regular OBGYNs where we know insurance is going to cover that. And so I'll work with the OBGYNs and say, okay, tweak it this way, order this ultrasound here, things where coming out of my office, insurance isn't going to pay for it, but coming out of their general OBGYNs, they might get it covered. And so there's there's some tandem working there with the docs in the community to help help get our younger patients taken care of. But you know, their overall success rates tend to be really quite good mm-hmm, because they yeah. are young. And so that's that's phenomenal. It's just in general, we see them proportionately less than our ladies who are in in their, you know, probably I'd say 20, 29 years and older. And one other group too that I was thinking about as well is younger patients that have a condition like endometriosis. Sometimes uh-huh. you see really young patients that can have really bad endometriosis that can make it more difficult for them to get pregnant. So, um, but yeah, we definitely see young people, but just proportionately, we see a lot more people that are late 20s, early 30s. All right. So, Going on to our topic of the day, which kind of segues nicely from our question is, what is IUI and how does that work? Because oftentimes a lot of our younger patients are going straight into that because they've got the time and they can work with So Abby, can you tell us what IUI is? So IUI stands for intrauterine insemination. So that's basically um, taking sperm um, from either partner or or donor sperm. Um, It's prepared so that we remove the seminal plasma and we concentrate the sperm into a really small volume. And the benefit of doing intrauterine insemination potentially is that we bypass the acidic pH of the vagina, which can cause the sperm to die sometimes or some of it to die. We bypass the cervical mucus. Sperm can get kind of tangled up in that sometimes and just basically get the sperm closer to the uterine cavity so that it has a better chance of getting to the to the egg that's been ovulated. Okay. And Susan, who are the patients that make the most sense to do this kind of treatment on? As we kind of mentioned earlier, people who have, as Carrie says, permanent lack of sperm, permanent <laughs> lack of sperm. Um, so anybody, anybody who, um, you know, obviously is going to need to use donor sperm would be, uh, you know, those are, those are the most obvious um, but a lot of times we use it in conjunction with um, ovulation induction where we give the woman medicines like Clomid or Femara or injectable medications. And we use the insemination to maximize that egg and sperm interaction 
sometimes with male factor, sometimes without male factor, um, you know, for insemination to work. Um, we like to see over 10 million total modal sperm. Um, we can see it work with less, but we know that the odds are going to decrease. Um, I, you know, I've seen it with very, very low numbers, but th those are the exceptions in the rules. Um, and so, like I said, it, maximizing that egg and sperm interaction, the sperm that ends up into the uterus, the nice thing is it, it can stay there for two, three days and survive. And so it really kind of boosts the amount of sperm that have exposure to that egg. It's interesting. Some people are really hesitant to do IUI and it may be the cost of IUI. Um, but, you know, we kind of just feel like it's, it's just gives the sperm a better chance to get there. You know, it, it, obviously you may not get pregnant with the natural act in your bedroom. And that may be sort of, uh, you know, another reason why people don't want to do it, but you know, I think a lot of times I'll see people and they'll be like, well, we, we don't really want to do very aggressive or we, you know, we want to do minimally aggressive treatment. And I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, for the most part, we don't think about IUIs being a really aggressive treatment because it's a fairly minor office procedure. You don't have to be put to sleep for it. And it's not, ex you know, exceedingly expensive in the way IVF is. So for people that are sort of thinking about it, I mean, it's, it's something we commonly do. Wouldn't you agree? We commonly see a lot of people that do IUIs in our office. I mean, it's probably the most common fertility treatment that a reproductive endocrinologist does. I mean, there's a lot of people who start with IUI. It may or may not work for them. I mean, IUI success rates kind of under the best of circumstances are going to range somewhere between 10 to 20%, depending on age and other factors. But, you know, if you can get pregnant by using IUI with or without other medications, if we can save you 20 grand and you don't have to do IVF, that's that's well worth the effort. And, and realize that, you know, a lot of the things that people who are wanting to do minimally invasive types of things, we're not causing fertilization to happen. Egg and sperm still have to come together in the tube. The little embryo has to, you know, it's created on its own. It has to go from the fallopian tube and implant into the uterus. Um, your your body is really, I mean, like Abby said, we're kind of giving it a, a, a nudge in the right direction. And <laughs> it, it is not a push. <laughs> yeah. The way that I describe it to my patients is, is when we're talking about just doing, you know, um, making a baby in the bedroom, doing insemination versus doing IVF, particularly IVF with ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. It's the difference between setting up a blind date where they have to figure out how to get to the restaurant on their own, which is what natural conception is, versus an IUI where you drop them both off at the entrance to the restaurant versus IVF with ICSI where you both put them in bed together. <laughs> <laughs> None of those things guarantees that what will happen in bed is going to be good, productive, and continue on, but the odds are a lot higher the further on down that list you get. Um, and so, so, so you were mentioning total modal count earlier. So how can you break that down for us, Abby? Can you say when you're looking at a semen analysis that your patient has, that he went and had that really romantic experience in the lab <laughs> and, and you get that report back, what are you looking at to say, yeah, it's reasonable for us to try IUI versus no, we really got to go to IVF. Like where's the line? 
So we want to have a really good concentration. That's what most people think of when they think of the count. We also want the guy to have a good volume because if he doesn't have much ejaculate, that's kind of a problem, even though the concentration of the sperm may be really good. We also want the movement to be there. So if you had your husband had lots and lots of sperm, but none of it moved, that would be a problem. So the total modal count really takes all three of those things into um the picture. So you multiply the count times the volume times the motility to come up with that number. And so when I look at a sperm count, my eyes go to that the very first thing, because really to me, that's sort of a summary of kind of everything that's important, or at least I think is important for the IUI. So typically we want that number to be around 10 million. So that means 10 million moving sperm, absolute number that we think that we're going to be able to put up inside the female reproductive tract. An important thing to know also is that when we're sitting there talking about 10 million, realize that not all sperm are going to survive the processing to become an IUI specimen. And so whatever you have on your baseline semen analysis is not going to be what we actually put into the female recipient. Okay. Those numbers are going to decrease. And so that's, you know, if you come in and, and your baseline semen analysis shows us 10 million total modal sperm, we may be like, mm, it's 10 million, but after it gets processed and goes through the things that we do to it in the lab, we're not going to have 10 million. What are the things in the lab, Susan, just in general? There are different ways to prepare a IUI. Sometimes they do what's called a swim-up prep, where essentially there's a separation of media and that type of thing. Um, like, like you said, we, we separate the sperm out and have, cause the other stuff is going to be very uncomfortable if we directly injected it into a woman's uterus and should have lots of cramping and not like us anymore. And that doesn't do us any good. <laughs> so we get the best and the brightest sperm is what we do, right? Exactly. Exactly. But, and you're going to have variability from man to man. How I've seen people who have had a hundred million total modal sperm and come in for IUI and it drops down to 10 million. Whereas I've had people who had 14 million and then it went down to 10 million. It, it, it's going to vary from person to person. And so it, it's something we're aware of. And our treatment modalities are also diagnostic modalities. There, there are things that we are going to learn about you as an individual, about you as a couple. Um, that until we're in it, you know, we're, we're not necessarily going to know exactly how it's going to turn out. We know how it's going to turn out most of the time. And if it's not going in the right direction, that, that's when we're going to have honest conversations with you. So what about, what do you, how do you guys counsel when you have someone comes in, let's say it's a woman who's had her tube, one tube removed for whatever reason, ectopic pregnancy, endometriosis, whatever it may be. And she's got the other tube that is open when the HSG or tubal testing is done. So she knows she's got at least one tube and an IUI is, a, is on the table as a, a method of getting her pregnant. How do you counsel those patients? Let's assume that his sperm count is, is adequate to do IUI reasonably. So in general, what I tell a patient, if she only has one tube and she's ovulated on that side, I think it's a good idea, obviously, to do IUI. It's certainly possible that sperm can swim up through that fallopian tube, go over to the other side, fertilize the egg. And, you know, if she didn't ovulate on the on the side where there was a good egg, but generally, generally, I don't advise people 
routinely to have an IUI, spend the money for that if they don't have a good egg on the side that they have an open tube on. I differ from you a little bit, Abby, on that. I, I've had a number of pregnancies with people who have gotten pregnant on the contralateral side. I mean, I'm I granted the chances are less, but compared to the, I mean, you've already spent, you know, two to four hundred dollars on ultrasounds monitoring your cycle and and those types of things. If we do get pregnant, you know, the other option is going straight to IVF, and that's you know probably five to 10 times as much. Well, I mean, I wouldn't after one try. I mean, I, you know, hopefully you're going to have three or four tries on the good side. But yeah, you're right though. If you don't get pregnant that way, then you're thinking probably more in the realm of IVF. I don't cancel IUIs because you're ovulating on the wrong side because I've seen it happen plenty of times. It's not going to happen as often, but... That's, yeah. you know, there, yeah. there's going to be different ways people manage that. Usually I give them three to four months. And if they haven't gotten pregnant, then we regroup and talk. <laughs> I tend to tell people with just one tube that we're going to watch them like a hawk because I'm more worried about whatever caused that tube to come out could have damaged the other side. So even if it's open, there's all these little hairs on the inside that still have to function because it's not just the passageway being open. It's the passageway being open and clear and facilitating egg and sperm coming together and then the resulting embryo moving down to the uterus. So I always tell people, we are going to watch you like a hawk because I expect, like I know when that egg and sperm should have come together and when we should be seeing something in the uterus. And if I'm not seeing something in the uterus at that early stage, then all little hairs on the back of my neck go up and I, you know, you are now on my radar screen big time. To clarify what Carrie's talking about is she's worried about an ectopic pregnancy or a pregnancy in the wrong place, which can be a life-threatening condition for a woman. And so um, I, I totally agree. I, those, those are the people that I have a little, I have ectopic risk as my first alert that comes up on, on their, um, the, EMR portal that I use so that I'm like, okay, I need to make sure that we're making sure that you make sure on everybody, but those are people that you you definitely are on heightened alert because, you know, whatever made that other tube not work, the, the one that is theoretically working, it, you know, definitely was exposed to it. And this is definitely an area of fertility testing that we're lacking. We, we have the ability to test structure of fallopian tubes, but we have no tests to test the function of fallopian tubes. So on a different note, but similar to what we're talking about, as far as ways to give people a better chance, I have a lot of patients that will come in sometimes and the female partner will be ovulating regularly. And maybe there is a male issue, maybe there's not. Would you start with medicine first? Would you start with IUI first? Or would you recommend doing both of those together? What do you think, Carrie? I tend to do both together primarily because by the time someone hits my office, they wanted to be pregnant yesterday. And, and so if someone feels very strongly, and this is assuming there's no male factor that mandates we got to do IUI or IVF or what have you, um, you know, I tend to, to go straight to a combination of medication to make sure that the egg is being grown up to be a mature egg. So that's either Clomid or Letrozole, Clomiphene or Femara. And then I give a trigger shot, uh, typically uh, an HCG trigger shot of some sort. Um, I think ovulation predictor kits drive everybody nuts. I agree. And so by the time they get to me, I'm less inclined to want to use them because I just want to know that it's happened. And when you give the trigger shot, you know that that happens. And then we do the IUI to make sure there's sperm there. So that tends to be my preferred starting treatment because as, as the specialist... 
I want to know that I am looking at every factor and I'm checking off every box and being thorough. Now, some people are going to want to start with less than that, and that's totally fine. We go through for the people where that is and is not appropriate, but that's kind of my default. What's yours, Susan? Yeah, I pretty much do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's relatively decent evidence that says that in the absence of male factor, just doing IUI actually doesn't improve chances of pregnancy and it just makes you spend more money and it makes you spend more time. And as Carrie said, you want to be pregnant yesterday. And so I do a lot. I don't use much Clomid in my practice. I do a lot of letrozole. I do a lot of letrozole plus like a single gonadotropin injection. We call it a menstem cycle. Um, and use that in combination with insemination, and we have we have good success rates. And and you know, and, and like Harry said, we we offer lesser things because we want to do what's right for that individual couple. Um, but if it's you know, hey doc, what's going to give me the best chances of getting pregnant, and it's you know clinically appropriate. And, you know, we're not wanting to go to IVF. I think, you know, ovulation induction or super ovulation um, with IUI is, is really kind of my mainstay. What about you, Abby? I agree with everything you guys said. I would definitely say, you know, say we do have a male indication and there's a male factor. I would definitely add medicine to that, even though the female partner may be ovulating regularly. Because there's data to show that if you do both of those together, they work better than either one of them separately. So certainly if you're going to do IUI, definitely would do medicine. Medicine probably doesn't have a great impact, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly for women over the age of probably 35, 40, somewhere in that range. So I, I try and get patients to do both of those together. But sometimes I find that some of, particularly some of my younger patients are a little more hesitant to immediately start out with IUI. They feel that that's a pretty big step for them. So, you know, sometimes I start people on medicine first with the thought that, well, if this doesn't work after three or four months, they're young, three months in the whole scheme of things is probably not, won't have a negative impact on their fertility. If it doesn't work at that point, then we'll add an IUI after that. So if you have, looking at looking at all comers, if you get one shot, one cycle of whatever you want to do to get someone pregnant, what do you, what do you choose? Do you do medication alone, like your Clomid or Femara, uh, medication plus IUI or IVF? What if you get that one shot and that is all you have? What do you do? I have one shot and money's no object. That's a loaded question, Carrie. <laughs> you have one shot and money is not on the table. Like you have someone who comes like I need to be pregnant or have the ability to get pregnant as soon as possible. I can do this once and then I am moving to the middle of the ocean on you know a tiny little floating island and IVF. I mean, the, the success rates are, they're just not comparable with IUI. Yes. Like I said, you're 10 to 20% versus at a quality lab, you know, you're going to have success rates, 60 plus percent, dep depending on your age and your individual factors and things like this. But if, if you give me, if you give me the option and there's no dollar sign attached, why would I not go to something that has the best success rate? And Carrie, you may be kind of speaking to the point that I think because both of those start with I, people get those really confused. And it's yeah. easy. Sometimes we're even saying IUI and we mean IVF. But IUI, again, stands for intrauterine insemination. Five, maybe 10% chance at best in a really young patient. IVF, 
much higher success rate, but also a much higher cost, which is limiting for a lot of people. So yeah, definitely, if I have the choice of <laughs> IUR or IVF, I'm definitely going to choose IVF for the patient because it has a much better success rate as a general rule. Yeah. But with that being said, because we all live in the real world, at least most of us live in the real world, <laughs> the, the important thing for our listeners, though, is realize that starting with some sort of IUI for most people is a reasonable thing to do under reasonable circumstances. Should you go do a year of IUI? No, <laughs> not at all. I don't, I don't care if you have permanent male factor. Tw- I mean, 12 months. I mean, you've spent a buttload on donor sperm by the time you get to that point, like it, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And what we know in our fertility treatments is that if it's going to work, it should work quickly. I, I think I had two patients last week that no kidding had been on Clomid or Femara um, with their general OB-GYN for 18 to 24 months. And Ooh. I'm like, obviously that's not working. I mean, like I would never, ever prescribe that for that long because it's not working. One of the things that I tell my IUI patients, because I would say the vast majority of the time, we start with at least a couple of cycles of IUI and then mm-hmm. we sit down, reevaluate and say, okay, these are where your success rates are. This is what we saw with the IUI cycle. And we go from there. But I would say the thing that I worry most about in IUI cycles is the frustration factor. Because if someone has gone through usually you see it emerge somewhere between about cycle number three and cycle number six of doc, my eggs are there. My lining is thick. We know that the sperm is the right pl- in the right place. Why haven't I gotten pregnant? And then the thinking, cause, cause you can see it in their faces and hear it in their voices and see it in their eyes is all this is here and ready to go, but I'm not getting pregnant. Therefore I will never get pregnant therefore I'm going to stop treatment now. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen people come back after taking a two-year, five-year, 10-year hiatus from treatment where before, if they just kept going, we were like, it had a very high chance of working, whether that is continuing on with IUI or, you know, accelerating to IVF, but because they got frustrated and, and so down and depressed and sad about it, they walked away And then they came back. And now they have to use donor egg. And now they've got to use donor egg or go through multiple, multiple cycles of IVF um, to even have a chance of getting pregnant. And that is a very different story. So one of the things that I worry most about is that frustration factor, because I've seen that in even my most resilient patients. and, And that's what I worry about. Well, and I think sometimes too, patients get really frustrated at us. They're like, listen, doc, you said if we do this IUI and the count's good and my lining's good and I have an egg, I'm going to get pregnant. Why hasn't happened? And, you know, I, I, I sort of tell patients, you know, even if you're not in the medical field, think back to what you learned in high school biology. There's so many steps in this process that we don't have tests for and we don't have treatments for. And there's so many things that have to happen just in the first 24 hours that, you know, unfortunately, we just don't have a way to test for to treat. And so we just try and get the sperm and the egg in the closest proximity that we can at the right time um, to enhance the success. So, but there's definitely a lot more aggressive therapies that we can do beyond just IUI. So I have a question um, for you guys, just to kind of gain perspective of how our practices are the same or different. Um, I love this part of our our podcast is, you know, seeing, seeing what everybody else does, these little intricacies. So generally my rule of thumb is, I usually give 
IUI about three cycles. And at that point is my, hey, let's sit down and talk. We may do some more or we may change tracks, but this is the point where I like to sit down and talk. What what do you guys do? Mine is two to, between two and four cycles. If I have someone who I can tell is really anxious, sometimes I'll do it after one cycle. But I would say between two, two to four with two and three being my most common touch points, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I want to make sure that we're, that they're okay. Yeah. Yeah. I usually say about three cycles. I think patients get really frustrated after a while. And even though, you know, three months in the whole scheme of things, if you went to your primary care doctor, you don't expect to see them every three months. But I think in our field, if, you know, if they're coming in, th- you know, several times for ultrasound monitoring and insemination, and they haven't gotten pregnant after three months, I feel like that's a really good time to catch them before they just get really frustrated or like really, you know, just angry and just ready to move on. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you ladies for such a wonderful episode and going through everything. Um, to our audience, thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more and leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know you're listening. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsensensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. We love your ideas. We love your, your comments and just keep sending them in. We love, we love all the feedback. Yeah, keep them coming. Bye. 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 Bye.